In the last lecture, we looked at ethnic polarization. In this lecture, we're going to take a step a bit further and see how ethnic wars manifest. One of the most interesting sort of ideas that comes out of the literature is to try to understand how uh, we can predict ethnic wars and what are the particular conditions to predict them. We know there's a few attributes. For instance, the more representatives and ethnic groups uh, who are excluded from state power, uh, you find that it might increase the propensity for ethnic wars. Notably, if that ethnic group has been excluded and they've experienced a, a loss of power in the recent past. We often find there's a mobilization aspect. Namely, the higher their mobilization capacity for the ethnic group, the more likely an ethnic war can actually occur. The third sort of attribute we look for when it comes to conditions to predict ethnic wars is whether or not that ethnic group has experienced conflict in the past. In short, what we can suggest is that ethno-nationalist struggles over access to state power are an important part of the dynamics leading to the outbreaks of ethnic civil wars. To understand, for instance, the conflicts that broke out in the former Yugoslavia and Soviet successor states, as well as in Rwanda during the 1990s, we find that some researchers utilize ideas developed to study interstate relations during the Cold War. Most prominently, Ethnic conflict can be conceived as a struggle between ethnic groups in the wake of state collapse. According to neo-realist theory, ethnic groups face a security dilemma when the state disappears and react with preemptive sort of violence. These ideas were subsequently elaborated with the help of rational choice models. As a consequence, the assumption of state breakdown, however, is, is that this research tends to overlook the important role played by state actors in generating these conflicts in the first place, such as was the case in wars in Yugoslavia and Rwanda. In the absence of state agency, political violence may take the form of communal conflict over land or local political dominance, but not necessarily full-fledged ethnic civil war. Many scholars argue that ethnic grievances are too widespread to explain the rare onset of conflict. Wars are more likely, or so the argument goes, in states that are too weak to suppress rebellions, or where natural resources invite warlords to enrich themselves by looting. Research on this basis, um, this sort of grievance hypothesis, has undoubtedly helped us to clarify the general conditions that are conducive to civil wars and insurgencies. However, the grievance hypothesis has not been tested with adequate data. Rather, it's been tested with highly aggregated proxies that do not provide a direct measure of political inequality along ethnic lines and resulting grievances. In some research, the scholars examine whether there is a statistical association between the measure of a nation's ethnic fractionalization and civil war onset. Some scholars have worked with measures of ethnic polarization that are loosely related to theories of ethnic conflict, but again, without explicit references to the state. Others seek to operationalize the concept of ethnic domination, but use a demography proxy. Now, what's really interesting is looking at the minorities at risk data set. Building on the work in the relative deprivation tradition, the Minorities at Risk dataset is one of the most prominent data sources used to evaluate ethnic mobilization and violence at the group level. 
Scholars in this tradition have studied the consequences, the economic, the political, and cultural discrimination, uh, the settlement patterns that enhance minority mobilization for conflict, domestic diversion mechanisms, the dynamics of succession bargaining and third-party intervention, as well as the role of country-level factors, such as government responses to autonomy claims by ethnic minorities and broader international contextual factors facilitating ethnic mobilization. While the Minorities at Risk data set allows for empirical testing of mechanisms linking group characteristics to conflict propensity, it has its limitations. Some studies find that political disadvantage has an impact on the likelihood of armed rebellion and succession. Others find that the degree of political exclusion has no effect on successionism. Some of these discrepancies can be attributed to different research designs and sample definitions, but the data set's inherent problems might be responsible for these conflicting findings as well. The minorities at risk uh, sort of data set hardwires the degree of power access into the sample definition by excluding groups in power from systemic consideration. This reduces the comparative horizon and thus makes it harder to capture the effects of political exclusions in unambiguous ways. Moreover, in many nations with dramatic shifts in power constellations, think of the Chad, Afghanistan, Liberia, the political status of an ethnic group may change from discriminated minority to ruling elite from one period to the next. Focusing on minorities conflates the demographic concept of numerical domination with political exclusion. In sum, we can suggest that much of the recent literature on ethnic conflict and civil wars fails to get the state's role right. Many approaches do not take account of the state as an actor in conflict processes, as for instance, what the security dilemma approach does. Most approaches do not really account the state uh, and fail to trace the ethno sort of political power constellations at the center of state power, as what we see in the minority mobilization school. Many approaches also do not um, capture in a very effective way, the ethno-political discontent, and they generally do so through demographic proxies of diversity, which has its limitations. When we look at nationalist mobilization conflict, Tilly's polity model is quite instructive. Tilly's polity model suggests a political system comprising a government and a number of contenders seeking to maximize their access to executive power. Members of the polity enjoy a privileged position, while those excluded from direct access to government represent potential challengers. Let's assume that polity members and challengers consist of ethnic groups and their leaders, including politically irrelevant groups. Given the principle of ethno-national representativity is embodied by the modern nation state, it can be expected that challenges or challengers rather, seek to avoid the rule of ethnic others by gaining access to the polity or leaving it in favor of a new polity or an already existing kin state. Power holders should want to maximize their share of state power, thus opening the possibility of infighting amongst power sharing partners. Civil wars confront incumbent governments with political and military organizations that challenge the government's claim to sovereign rule. This situation really corresponds to the standard definitions of civil war, 
but excludes communal conflicts in which the state plays less of an active role. In conflicts that are fought in the name of the excluded group, rebel movements are composed of mobilized and militarized organizations that challenge the government. In the case of challenges launched in the name of groups that are already represented within government, other actors such as a faction within the army or newly created political organizations and militias, they may instigate a violent confrontation. We now turn to the conditions that are necessary for violence. Groups will be more motivated to support a rebellion against ethnic domination by others. Indeed, many aggrieved groups have not produced militant rebel organizations. We therefore have to identify those groups that perceive the government as particularly illegitimate and are therefore more inclined to support rebellions. Second, we consider a group's organizational capacity to challenge incumbent state power because high levels of motivation alone will not suffice to produce an armed organization willing to take on the government's army. Finally, rather than constituting historical singularities, um, political violence often leaves traces that put nationalistic politics on a contentious track. We therefore need to identify such potential effects of path dependency. To specify motives and identify the most motivated actors, an institutional approach to nationalism and ethnic politics, which assumes that rulers in modern state are no longer legitimized by the principles of dynastic succession is used. Political office holders have institutional incentives to gain legitimacy by favoring co-ethnics over others when it comes to the distribution of public goods and government jobs. The expectation of ethnic preferences work in the other direction as well. As voters prefer parties led by co-ethnics, delinquents hope for co-ethnic judges, and citizens prefer to be policed by co-ethnics. Under the conditions of pervasive ethnic favoritism, political leaders and followers are driven by the strategic motive to avoid or even to overturn dominance by ethnic others. This motive is simultaneously material, political, and symbolic. Adequate or just representation in the central government offers material advantages such as access to government jobs and services. It offers legal advantages such as the benefits of full citizenship rights, a fair trial, or protection from arbitrary violence. And the symbolic sort of advantages can be seen such as the prestige of belonging to a state-owning ethnic group. This approach conceives of ethnic politics as a struggle over the control of the state between variously ethnically defined organizations and their constituencies. Especially in weak states, uh, with weakly developed civil societies, the state may be captured by particular ethnic elites and their constituents, thus giving rise to one among many other variants of the weak state strong society constellation. It follows that groups that lose out in the struggle for state power are more fertile breeding grounds for organizations that challenge the government. We can postulate a direct relationship between the degree of state power and the likelihood that an armed rebellion will be instigated in the name of that particular group. The most excluded groups will thus be most likely to support armed organizations that challenge the government. Now, given nationalistic principles of political legitimacy, feelings of resentment will be widespread 
and can be channeled into successful collective action. The exclusion mechanism also alerts us to the consequences of changes in power hierarchies. When we look at theories of emotions, they suggest that negative emotions are especially likely to be aroused following the loss of group power and prestige. When the subjects blame others for their downgrading, anger and resentment increases the readiness to fight in order to change the situation. Leaders of ethno-nationalist organizations will be most likely to resort to violence if they have recently experienced a loss of relative power. They can channel the resentment of their constituencies and mobilize to, to reverse a reversal, so to speak. Collective action theory tells us that group motivations are insufficient to produce political mobilization and violent contestation. The motivational forces uh, that, that we see are necessary, but not a sufficient cause for ethnic conflict. Successful mobilization requires both motivation and organizational capacity. So while neoclassical collective action theory expects free riding in large groups, nationalists may overcome such dilemmas through intra-group monitoring by relying on pre-existing social networks and by mobilizing identity-related cooperation norms. Following resource mobilization theory, we can postulate that larger excluded groups are even more able to challenge a government since they can draw on their superior numbers to recruit fighters and have a larger potential resource pool to sustain an organizational infrastructure. The political claims of larger ethnic groups also enjoy more legitimacy. Given the principles of representativity that underlie the nation state, the exclusion of large sections of the population from power is more scandalous than the exclusion of smaller groups and minority rule states. Are, the, are, are really among the least legitimate political regimes in the contemporary world. Ethno-nationalist mobilization and contestation are macro-historical processes that operate not only in, short, in the short term, but also in the long term sort of span. It may take decades until perceived humiliation and unfair ethnic status hierarchies give rise to political mobilization and conflict. Thus, rather than being an instant and ahistorical phenomena, nationalist mobilization takes place in a historical context that might be characterized by previous episodes of ethno-nationalistic violence. In extreme cases of path dependency, actors may find themselves trapped in self-sustaining cycles of violence. We can postulate that past conflicts influence the likelihood of, of present conflict through three mechanisms. The first being that ethno-nationalist activists attempt to glorify their group's history through one-sided narratives that stress their own victories and attribute blame for military losses to traitors, weak-spirited leaders, or a ruthless enemy. This implies that leaders might not update their risk assessments and might take up arms again even when the chances of winning have not improved significantly. A second mechanism is this notion that past experiences of traumatic violence may live on as part of the oral tradition or, or they may sometimes be perpetuated in official history textbooks and public rituals, nourishing calls for revenge. A third mechanism is this idea that prior exposure to combat means that violence is no longer unthinkable for the group, 
but constitutes part of the accepted repertoire of action and may help create organizational structures and identities that can be reactivated in later points or even create a culture of violence. Ethnic civil wars are extremely violent, with much of this violence directed against unarmed civilians. Advocates of international action seek to redress the failures of local political institutions and elites by brokering political power-sharing arrangements or by the reconstruction of exclusive ethnic identities into wider inclusive civic identities. Pessimists generally doubt these remedies, arguing that ethnic wars express primordial hatreds which cannot be reduced by outside intervention since they have been ingrained by long histories of intercommunal conflict. Now both sides, the advocates and the pessimists, um, can be wrong, so to speak, namely because solutions to ethnic wars do not depend on their causes. First, ethnic wars, both hyper-nationalistic mobilization rhetoric and real atrocities harden ethnic identities to the point that cross-ethnic political appeals are unlikely to be made and even less likely to be heard. Another way to think about this is that intermingled population settlement patterns create real security dilemmas that intensifies violence, it motivates ethnic cleansing, and prevent de-escalation unless the groups are separated. As a result, restoring civic and uh, politics in multi-ethnic states shattered by war is impossible since the war itself destroys the possibilities for ethnic cooperation. Stable resolutions of ethnic civil wars are possible, but only when the opposing groups are demographically sort of separated into defensible sort of enclaves. In other words, they need to be separated. Separation reduces both incentives and opportunity for further combat, and largely eliminates both reasons and chances for ethnic cleansing of civilians. While ethnic fighting can be stopped by other means, such as peace enforcement by international forces or by a conquering empire, such peace generally lasts as long as the enforcer remains. This ultimately means to save lives threatened by genocide, the international community may have to abandon attempts to restore war-torn multi-ethnic states. Instead, they must facilitate and protect population movements to create true national sort of homelands. Sovereignty is secondary. Defensible ethnic enclaves reduce violence with or without independent sovereignty, while partition without separation does very little to stop mass killing. Once massacres have taken place, we often find that ethnic cleansing will continue to occur. It is important for us to note that civil wars are not alike. Ethnic conflicts are dispute between communities which see themselves as having distinct heritages over the power relationships between the communities. While ideological civil wars are contests between factions within the same community over how that community should be governed. The key difference is the flexibility of individual loyalties, which are quite fluid in ideological conflicts, but almost completely rigid in ethnic wars. The solutions to ethnic civil wars follow from this fact. War-hardened ethnic identities to the point that cross-ethnic political appeals becomes futile, which means that victory can only be assured by physical control over the territory in dispute. 
Ethnic wars also generate intense security dilemmas, both because the escalation of each side's mobilization rhetoric presents a real threat to the other, and even more because intermingled population settlement patterns create defensive vulnerabilities and offensive opportunities. Once this occurs, the war cannot end until the security dilemma is reduced by physical separation of the rival groups. Solutions that aim at restoring multi-ethnic civil politics and at avoiding population transfers such as power sharing, state rebuilding, or identity reconstruction cannot work since they do not really do much to dampen the security dilemma. And since ethnic fears and hatreds are hard by war are extremely resistant to change. The question we need to ask ourselves then is how do we end ethnic wars? The result is that ethnic wars can only be concluded in three different ways. The first is complete victory of one side. Another sort of scenario is by the temporary suppression of the conflict by a third party military occupation. And a third way is through self-governance of separate communities. The record of ethnic wars and since World War II has bear this out. It is useful to compare characteristics of ethnic conflicts with those of ideological conflicts. Again, the latter are competitions between the government and the rebels for the loyalties of the individuals. The critical features of these conflicts are that ideological loyalties are changeable and difficult to assess. And the same population serves as the shared mobilization base for both sides. As a result, winning the hearts and minds of the population is both possible and necessary for victory. The most important instruments really are political, economic, and social reforms that redress popular grievances. And generally, these grievances are socioeconomically rooted, such as poverty, inequality. We also see that the control of access to population is important, both to allow the recruitment and implementation of reform promises and to block the enemy from these tasks. Population control, however, cannot be guaranteed solely by physical control over the territory, but depends on careful intelligence, persuasion, and coercion. Purely military successes are often indecisive as long as the enemy's base of political support is undamaged. Ethnic wars have nearly the opposite properties. Individual loyal ties are both rigid and transparent, while each side's mobilization base is limited to members of its own group in friendly controlled territory. The result is that ethnic conflicts are primarily military struggles in which victory depends on the physical control over the disputed territory and not on appeals to members of the other group. Competition to sway individual loyalties does not play an important role in ethnic civil wars because ethnic identities are fixed by birth. While not everyone may be mobilized as an active fighter for his or her, or her own group, hardly anyone ever fights for the opposing ethnic group. Different identity categories implies their own membership rules. Ideological identity is relatively soft, as it is a matter of individual belief or sometimes uh, political behavior. Religious identities are harder, because while they're also dependent on belief, uh, change generally requires formal acceptance by the new faith, which may be denied. Ethnic identities are the hardest, since they depend on language, culture, and religion. 
which are incredibly difficult to change, as well as parentage, which no one can really change. Ethnic identities are hardened further by intense conflict, so that leaders cannot broaden their appeals to include members of opposing groups. As ethnic conflicts escalate, populations come increasingly to hold enemy images of the other group, either because of deliberate efforts by elites to create such images, or because of increasingly real threats. Another consequence of the hardness of ethnic identities is that population control depends wholly on territorial control. Since each side can recruit only from its own community and only in friendly controlled territory, incentives to seize areas populated by co-ethnics are strong, as is the pressure to cleanse friendly controlled territory of enemy ethnics by relocation to de facto camps. Because of the decisiveness of territorial control, military strategy in ethnic wars is very different than in ideological conflicts. Unlike ideological insurgents, who often evade rather than risk battle, or a counterinsurgent government which might forbear to attack rather than risk bombarding civilians, ethnic combatants must fight for every piece of land. Combatants in ethnic wars are much less free to decline unfavorable battles, since they cannot afford to abandon any settlement to an enemy who is likely to cleanse it by massacre, expulsion, um, in ethnic civil wars, military operations are decisive. Attrition matters since the side's mobilization pools are separate and can be depleted. Most importantly, since each side's mobilization base is limited to the members of its own community in friendly controlled territory, conquering the enemy's population centers reduces its mobilization base, while loss of friendly settlements reduces one's own. Military control of the entire territory at issue is tantamount to total victory. Regardless of the origins of ethnic strife, one's violence or, or abuse of state power of one group that controls it reaches the point that ethnic communities cannot rely on the state to protect them. Each community must mobilize to take responsibility for its own security. Under conditions of anarchy, each group's mobilization constitutes a real threat to the security of others for two reasons. First, the nationalistic sort of rhetoric that accompanies mobilization often seems to and, and often indicates offensive intent. Under these conditions, group identity itself can be seen by other groups as a threat to their safety. Second, military capability acquired for defense can usually also be used for offense. Furthermore, offense often has an advantage over defense in intra-community conflict, especially when sediment patterns are intermingled because isolated pockets are harder to hold than to take. The reality of mutual security threats means that solutions to ethnic conflicts must do more than undo the causes. Until or, or unless the security dilemma can be reduced or eliminated, neither side can afford to demobilize. The severity of ethnic security dilemmas is greatest when demography is most intermixed, and it's weakest when community settlements are most separate. The more mixed the opposing groups, the stronger the offense in relation to the defense. The more separated the groups are, the stronger the defense in relation to offense.
When sentiment patterns are extremely mixed, both sides are vulnerable to attack, not only by organized military forces, but also by local militias or gangs from adjacent towns or neighborhoods. Since well-defined fronts are impossible, there's no effective means of defense against such raids. Now, accordingly, each side has a strong incentive above national and local levels to kill or, or to drive out enemy populations before the enemy does the same to it. Better but still bad are well-defined enclaves with islands of one or both sides' populations behind the other's front. Each side then has an incentive to attack to rescue its surrounded co-ethnics before they're destroyed by the enemy, as well as incentives to wipe out enemy islands behind its own lines. The safest pattern is a well-defined demographic front that separates nearly homogeneous regions. Such a front can be defended by organized military forces, so populations are not at risk unless defenses are breached. At the same time, the strongest, the sort of strongest motive for attack disappears since there are few or no endangered co-ethnics behind enemy lines. Furthermore, offensive and defensive mobilization measures are most distinguishable when populations are separated than when they are mixed. Although hyper-nationalistic political rhetoric, as well as conventional military forces, have both offensive and defensive uses regardless of population settlement patterns, some other forms of ethnic mobilization does not. Local militias and ethically based local self-governing authorities have both offensive and defensive capabilities when populations are mixed. Ethnic militias can become death squads, while local governments dominated by one group can disenfranchise minorities. When populations are separated, however, such local organizations have defensive value only. What we have learned is, is that once an ethnic groups are mobilized for war, generally speaking, the war cannot end until the populations are separated into defensible, mostly homogeneous regions. Even if an international force or an imperial conqueror were to impose peace, the conflict would resume as soon as they left. Even if a national government was to somehow recreate, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a form and fashion despite mutual suspicions, neither group could safely entrust its security to it. Continuing mutual threat also ensures perpetuation of hyper-nationalistic propaganda, both for mobilization and because the possibility of the threat posed by the enemy gives radical nationalists an unanswerable advantage over moderates in intra-group debates. Ethnic separation, in other words, does not guarantee peace, but it allows it. Once populations are separated, both cleansing and, and rescue imperatives disappear. War is no longer mandatory. At the same time, any attempt to seize more territory requires a major conventional military offensive. Thus, the conflict changes from one of mutual preemptive sort of ethnic cleansing to something approaching conventional interstate war in which normal deterrence dynamics will apply. Mutual deterrence does not guarantee that there will be no further violence, but it reduces the probability of outbreaks as well as the likely aims and intensity of those that do occur. 
those considering humanitarian intervention to end ethnic civil wars should set as their goal lasting safety rather than perfect peace. Given the persistence of ethnic rivalries, safety is best defined as, as freedom from threats of ethnic murder or expulsion from the overwhelming majority of civilians of all groups. Absence of formal peace, even occasional terrorism or borderline skirmishes would not undermine this, provided that the great majority of civilians are not at risk. Lasting must mean that the situation remains stable indefinitely after the invention forces leave. Truces of weeks, months, or even years really do not qualify as lasting safety if ethnic cleansing eventually resumes with full force. Many ethnic civil wars lead to the complete victory of one side and forceful both sort of suppression of the other. This may reduce violence in some cases, but will never be an aim of outsiders considering humanitarian intervention. Moreover, remission of violence may only be temporary, as a defeated group usually rebels against any, at any sort of opportunity. The most ambitious program to, to end ethnic violence would be the, to reconstruct ethnic identities according to the constructivist model of nationalism. Constructivists argue that individual and group identities are fluid, continually being made and remade in social discourse, as we've discussed in our earlier lectures. Furthermore, these identities can be manipulable and manipulated by political entrepreneurs. Violent ethnic conflicts are the result of, of group identities created by hyper-nationalistic myth-making. In fact, many intergroup conflicts are quite recent as well as the ethnic identities themselves. The key is the ethnic rivalries within communities in which aggressive leaders use hyper-nationalistic propaganda to gain and hold power. History does not matter here. Whether past inter-community relations have in fact been peaceful or conflictual, leaders, elites, can redefine, reinterpret, and invent facts to suit their arguments. In fact, this can even include reinventing arguments to look at alleged atrocities and exaggerated or imagined threats. This process can feed on itself as nationalists use the self-fulfilling nature of their arguments both to escalate the conflict and to justify their own power so that inter-community politics becomes a competition in hyper-nationalistic extremism. It follows then that ethnic conflicts generated by the promotion of exclusive identities should be reversible by encouraging individuals and groups to adopt more benign inclusive identities. Leaders can choose to mobilize support on the basis of broader identities that transcend the ethnic division, such as ideology, class, or civic loyalty to the nation state. If members of the opposing groups can be persuaded to adopt a larger identity, ethnic antagonisms should fade away. The best, the absolute best developed blueprint for civic peace in multi-ethnic states is power sharing. This approach assumes that ethnicity is somewhat manipulable, but not so freely as constructivists say. Ethnic division, however, need not result in conflict, even if political mobilization is organized on ethnic lines. Civil politics can be maintained if ethnic elites adhere to power-sharing bargaining 
that equitably protects all groups. The key components are a joint exercise of governmental power, proportional distribution of government funds and jobs, autonomy on ethnic issues, and a minority veto on issues of vital importance to each group. Even if power sharing can avert potential ethnic conflicts or dampen mild ones, our concern here is whether it can bring peace under the conditions of intense violence and extreme mobilization that are likely to motivate intervention. This ends our lecture on ethnic wars and our conversation with ethnic polarization and how it leads to ethnic conflict. In our next series of lectures, we'll be looking at various models to manage diversity. And in the next lecture in particular, we'll be looking at multiculturalism.